When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. We are, as always, joined by our super producer, uh, Noel the English Brown. The English. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think nicknames are cool when it's a V something. How about, you know, like how in U2, yeah. it's The Edge. Yeah. The guitarist is just called The Edge. How about, n- not that I want to name Noel this, but yeah. I saw recently a group of uh, individuals that called themselves The Fool. The fool. Yeah, we definitely don't want to go with that for Noel. No, no, no. Uh, the how about uh, four rotor? Four Perfect. Ro- yeah, four rotor. Uh, four rotor brown. How about that? Yeah, that's cool. That's kind of there's a mafia feeling in that, you know. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like everyone has a number and then some attribute. They would yeah. like if you were in the mafia, they would call you Scotty Two Hands <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> two hands. Well, I hope that remains true for a long time. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Yeah. So as you as you know, ladies and gentlemen, of course, this is car stuff, and we are glad you are here, longtime listeners. You will know that. We have a habit of giving our producer nicknames based on the episode at hand. Yeah, and I guess uh, I guess uh, that was maybe a dead giveaway for what we're going to talk about here, maybe. But um, for at least for one listener, anyways, and okay. anybody who paid attention to the nuts and bolts episode that we did as well, because this one goes uh, way back, mm-hmm. all the way back to when was it? September of 2015. And this comes from Miles Davis from Wellington, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And Miles wrote in, that's on Facebook, by the way. That's why I felt comfortable giving Miles' entire name. Right. But um, Miles wrote in and said, Hey, guys, I just stumbled upon this on the web. Unsure if you've seen it or heard about it before, but I find it interesting. There's a clip to a YouTube video uh, that features a four-rotor-powered Corvette concept car. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And uh, I do agree that is very cool. And I replied saying that... Um, it was it, well. First of all, the whole funny, uh, the whole video is kind of funny in that you know it's set in, I believe, the early 1970s. Yeah, it's a seven, it's very 70s as well. <laughs> very 70s, yeah, it, which is uh, enjoyable to watch. You know the the narration, everything, everything about it. But it goes into the GM styling area and shows a lot of the guys that are working on this. And of course, they're all wearing uh, you know the suits of the day mm-hmm. and uh, you know plaid pants and mm-hmm. big wide collars, yeah, huge wide collars. And I said, I think I even mentioned like big pork chop sideburns. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> one of the funniest things, though, is like the new modern technology that they're using in this car that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And the digital readouts, they look a lot like the old calculator readouts, you know, the red letters that yeah. uh, or red numbers, rather, uh, that you can see individual bars on the uh, <laughs> on the readouts. Very, very old school, but uh, mm. also charming in a way. And sure. I, I also noticed that along the way that uh, some of this was was filmed, I guess, with a lot of uh, um, prototype trickery and that, you know, when they show the. Uh, the tachometer that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, as I showed that advancing, uh, it looks as if there's someone with a piece of cardboard <laughs> behind the dash that is, that is revealing the lights one by one as they right. do it. So there's there's a lot of that type of stuff in this, and it's really it's it's charming in a way, but it's also um, it, it's a really interesting vehicle, and it's one that nearly made it to production. So very, very close, yeah, very very close. So there's a, there's a whole story that goes along with this, and and I don't know if you. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this even, but this is a mid-engine Corvette. 
Mm-hmm. It's and true. And that is something that in the last, uh, man, I would say the last, well, several decades, really, mm-hmm. people have just been clamoring for GM to build, or Chevrolet, really, to build a a mid-engine Corvette. And they've been... Uh, Sort of, uh, they've, they've hedged their bets on this a little they've bit. They've like, they've flirted with the idea to varying degrees for a long time. Well, a long, long time. And I think a lot of people might not realize this, but in the 1960s, starting in 1964, they had a rear engine Corvette concept called the XP819. And XP, by the way, is experimental prototypes. So, right. and then they would, uh, give the, the project code a number. So, What's strange about this is the the numbers don't always line up. They're not always um, um, consecutive. Exactly right. Yeah. So in 1964, they had a rear engine concept that was V8 powered, um, called the XP819, and uh, this was um, similar to the Chaparral race cars of the day, which I think is really cool because GM and Chaparral kind of shared. Um, well, they shared parts between the companies. So, you know, the Chaparral cars had a, a Chevy a Chevrolet engine mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, back and forth with wheels or whatever, you know, so a lot of different parts were shared there. Um, and in that car, that, that rear engine concept, again, that's not a mid-engine, that's the that, first that's rear, rear engine, engine, is currently on display at the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So you can go visit the XP819 if you want. The first mid-engine concept came about two years later in 1966, and that was, uh, they just simply called it, I think, the mid-engine concept, but mm-hmm. there probably was a project name there, a code that went along with it, but you could find it just looking for mid-engine concept. And this one, I think this one was set up, they, they hinted that it was set up um, as early as 1965 on a, on a mid-engine chassis that they already had. Now, I wonder if that was a race car, because they had Chevy, or they had, rather, they had, they had Corvette mid-engine race cars at that point. Mm-hmm. Serve, I think, is one CERV, and uh, there was another one I can't quite come up with a name for right now, but these are like single-seater cars that were based on the Corvette in some way. So we know there's a possibility. There's a possibility, yeah. So 1966, that was the very first mid-engine concept, but there were others along the way, too. Mm-hmm. And I'll laundry list these, and then I'll let you speak, <laughs> Ben, finally, right? Yeah. All right, so there's the 1967 Astro One concept. Now, this was Corvair-derived. And it was kind of a Can-Am sort of looking car. It was only 35 and a half inches tall, which puts it five inches lower or four and a half inches lower than the Ford GT40. And if you've ever seen anybody stand next to a GT40, it's shocking yeah. how low that is. So this For is sure. a really, really low. Uh, because it was so low, however, they couldn't put a V8 into it, so they used a six-cylinder engine. Um, then there was the Astro 2 concept, which was a little bit less extreme, but this one did have a big block V8, and it was a 427. Now, this is... Um, the problem with this one is where we start to see like what the what the real issue is with this whole design for for GM. They had trouble fitting a transaxle to this whole mm-hmm. thing, like trying to figure out how they're going to get the power that's already right at the rear wheels to the rear wheels, and and <laughs> and the and the um, well the transaxle creates. So how are they going to shift? You know, how's it going to go through the gearbox? How's that all going to work out? So. They use a lot of different uh, versions of this long way. We'll find out they go to Cadillac for parts. Mm-hmm. They go to, um, I want to say, Oldsmobile for Tornado parts at some point. Uh, so they start using pieces from other parts of their um, overall manufacturing umbrella, you know, like uh, the other companies within, or the brands within the company. Right, but they're not finding that perfect fit. Not quite yet, and and they, they will eventually, but... In 1970, they had a, a concept that was called the XP882, and that was another mid-engine concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, uh, again, 1970. That was 1970. Am I right on that? That's late 60s. Late 60s. Okay. So that one's a, well. I think we could call it, we could ballpark it at 70s. Okay. Like, uh, well, this late 60s, first, 1970s. This is when they first started toying around with it. But by 1973, right. They have this four-rotor concept that we're going to talk about. And this is, again, XP882. Mm-hmm. Along the way, though, Ben, they have another couple of cars that, uh, you know, in 1973 that are interesting as well. It's not just the four-rotor car. And the four-rotor came about as, as, a, as a result of the two that you're about to tell us about. Oh, uh, right, yes. Yeah. So we have a few players we need to introduce in this, in this part of the story. Uh, one of the first is the famous Zora Arkut Stuntov. Uh, who was known famously as the father of the Corvette, mm-hmm. a little bit of a spoiler alert there, Belgian-born engineer, and he sometimes is called the inventor of the Corvette, but of course we know that's not really the case. The inventor of the Corvette is Harley Earl. Harley Earl, that's right. So 
this uh, the XP882, as it was known at the time, had this mid-engine configuration, and they used uh, transverse mounting of a V8 engine that um, that heavily depended on some interaction with Zora's team, with Arcus Duntov's engineers, and they built two prototypes, right? But there's another player in here, the famous... Some might say infamous John DeLorean. Ah, John DeLorean. Now, John DeLorean at the time he was uh, he was, was the GM GM for uh, Chevy. for Chevy Division. Yeah, right? for just, Chevy Division. Just for Chevy Division. Now that's important because Chevy Division, of course, is building the Corvette, and of course, all these programs that are going through the styling department are, mm-hmm. are still um, under under his control. Right, and he says this is going to be inefficient. It's going to cost too much. It's a pipe dream. Essentially, he cancels the program early on until that is Ford says they're going to sell a different vehicle. And it gave him some, uh, you know, the young kids call it FOMO, fear of missing out. FOMO. I've never heard FOMO. that one. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was something. I'm, I'm way behind on my tech speak, as you can, as I got you my, can guess. I got my finger on the pulse of irrelevant Internet <laughs> slang, my friend. FOMO. Yeah, but Ford changes his mind on this when they say what? Well, they're going to uh, sell the the Pantera, the De Tomaso Pantera, through Lincoln Mercury dealers. And, of course, they did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem was that DeLorean says, well, we don't have anything really to compete with that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take one of those old show cars. Just one. Just one of those, uh, those old cars. Actually, um, we're going to kind of clean it up, kind of dust it off a little right, bit, and right. make something a little bit more presentable. Mm-hmm. And we are going to present that at the 1970 New York Auto Show, and that's exactly what they did. And it works, because uh, two years later, DeLorean says, you know what, let's take that other 882 and give it a new code and take it back to the shop and start tinkering. You know what, Ben, let me let me interrupt here for just a second. Sure. I think moving just slightly forward, there's a couple of uh, key players here that we're, we're not really ta- – we haven't talked about we yet. We haven't introduced Yeah, them. we haven't yet, and I think we probably should at this point because in 1973, at the same year as they came out with the uh, the four-rotor concept, there were also a couple of two-rotor cars that were built. Right. And these two-rotor cars – now, of course, what we're talking about here, just in case anybody is confused, and I, I doubt if you are at this point. Oh, yeah, we're but, talking about vehicles that use the Wankel rotary engine. Yeah, yeah. So two-rotor concept is – obviously, there's two rotors within it. It's a very small engine, very mm-hmm. compact, and there's uh, there's a, an entire car stuff, stuff episode on the rotary engine if you want to go back and learn the basics of that. We're not going to describe that today. But. Oh, shameless plug, which you can find for free on our website, <laughs> carstuffshow.com. Very good, Ben. Yeah, and I think it goes back to um, – uh, when was that? Like May of 2010, I believe, mm-hmm. when we spoke about that. I have a note here somewhere, but lost it. But that's um, still, I mean, that technology has not changed dramatically. You can still, the information you hear on that episode will still explain what a rotary engine is and what it does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's the current up-to-date information on <laughs> rotary engines, I right. suppose, right? There's maybe a little something here and there, but that's it. And so they built two of these. In 1973, they built right. one called the XP897 a concept, uh, concept vehicle, and they built an XP897. Now, both of these used um, what would be the 1974 Chevy Vega rotary engine. Now, again, this is a strange little bit of history. Chevy Vega only had that rotary engine as an option for one year in 1974. Right, and it was a two-rotor engine. It was a two-rotor engine. So so here's the thing is that um, Bill Mitchell and Zora Duntoff, uh, Zora Arcus Duntoff, decided that uh, the, the output from that two-rotor engine was not enough for their Corvette. So what did they do? They bolted two together and made a four-rotor engine, which is what um, Miles wrote in about and mm-hmm. said, I'd like to hear about this four-rotor concept. So the four-rotor is actually the result of them bolting two of these together to create a 420-horsepower version of that 180-horsepower engine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made perfect sense. I mean, that's the, that's the type of thing that you would want to put into a Corvette, I guess, if you're going to have. You're going to up the horsepower. But, of course, we know that there's there are pros and cons about this uh, this whole rotary engine thing. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a bunch. There's uh, there's there's emissions and fuel economy uh-huh. issues that are that are problems. There's also um, bad sealing, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a couple of other things. The pros are that it's small. It's got a lot of torque. Um, that it uh, you can you can upsize this thing by bolting on more rotors, and it doesn't um, it doesn't really. There's a point where I think it, it suffers, but you can do that with a you can bolt on several units together and make a larger engine. Right, almost like a modular. What do they call that? A scale of economy? Not a scale of economy. Am I thinking something different? Um, I, it's scalable. Maybe just scalable. Yeah, it's that's, scalable. It's scale. Scale. Yeah, yeah that's the, that's the uh, the term, and I, I I know that's a. a 
a, uh, a crude way to t- talk about that, but um, that's true. Well, it also, let's talk about some of the pros. Just a quick recap for rotary engines in general. Okay. The number of parts and overall moving actions are relatively simple, small, compared to uh, a typical IC, right? Mm-hmm, sure. And since they use less parts, they're also lighter, which uh, can play a big role in something like a race car. Uh, sports car sense. design. People would love design, to, to design right? a sports car with lightweight, mm-hmm. cap- well, lightweight, I guess. And uh, even though they're not particularly common today, they're very reliable and they have a good performance rating. As long as you take care of it, it'll do it'll do right by you, I guess. Uh, they also have less vibration. Yeah. Those are some solid pros, but all the cons you mentioned are perfect. You have to check the oil constantly. Yeah. And uh, you also have a much higher risk of leaks, oil leaks in particular. Yeah, we're not trying to, uh, you know, dump on anybody who is a, a rotary fan by any means. I mean, there's a, there's definitely a place for these. And, of course, uh, Mazda is huge into rotary engines. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they were just experimenting with this back in GM. In fact, there was this whole, uh, this whole not division, but just a, um, a push at that time to power a lot of their vehicles with rotary engines. But the whole program eventually was was killed off, and we'll, we'll tell you how that happened right. in just a minute. But we're still in 1973, and that's when mm-hmm. you know this uh, this XP895 concept, um, right? Comes the about one as with well. the uh, Frankenstein together Vega engines. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's right. There's XP895, which is the um, a, a different version of that, which had an all aluminum body, and it yeah. later became something known as known as the Reynolds aluminum car, and mm-hmm. that's exactly the Reynolds aluminum that you're thinking of. If you're thinking Reynolds right. wrap, yeah, you know, the aluminum foil. That's the company, but they did so much more than just Reynolds wrap. They mm-hmm. did all kinds of aluminum products and, and, in fact, building materials and, um, you know, they supplied automakers. It was just a, a huge, huge company. I read a lot of interesting Precision things. Precision machining components. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just read a lot of interesting stuff about Reynolds along the way this last week, um, including their building, which is on the National Historic Register. It's, the building's made of aluminum and their own aluminum. And That's got, cool. I yeah, and, that. and get this inside, and this is just a way off track, but here, um, inside they have like built-in file cabinets that are made of aluminum. They have um, aluminum on the walls. Their, their carpet and their curtains are woven with aluminum fibers. So these guys are like the Willy Wonka of aluminum. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So, <laughs> so look, if you really want to just kind of go down the rabbit hole, I yeah, guess, yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can look into the Reynolds Aluminum Company and see what interesting things there are about their, their headquarters. And the, and the car was built as a marketing campaign, exactly. pretty much, right? Yes, exactly right. Yeah, so... Um, so we've got the Reynolds aluminum car. We've got the uh, we've got the XP eight ninety five, uh, and the XP eight ninety five first goes to the public in seventy three. Although yeah. they're working on seventy two. That's the that's the Reynolds aluminum car. Okay, so that one is uh, again mid seventies, and these other two rotor concepts we're talking about are from nineteen seventy three, and those are going to come back in a little bit, and I'll t- I'll tell you why that's really right. important. Oh, okay. So, so let's, one of those is the XP eight ninety seven GT. Yeah, that's another one. That's one of the other two rotor cars. And the problem with this whole thing, as we just said, was that, um, you know, the, the, a couple of things, you know, the, uh, the emissions, the, uh, the fuel consumption, all that stuff, you know, the, the, the cons. Ooh, that's right. We didn't, I don't know if we mentioned that. One of the big cons of the rotary engine design is that although it is lighter, although it is simpler, it's also thirstier. Yeah. Thirstier than a comparable V8. Exactly. That's that's the, probably the way we should put it, is that, yeah. a, that a comparable V8. So, you know, of course we know that General Motors has uh, some fantastic V8 engines they could have put in this thing. The 454, mm-hmm. the 427. They've got a lot of, they got a bunch of different engines they could put in. Um, however, uh, they, they decided they were going to stick with this rotor program, but at the time, this is bad timing on this, this whole thing because uh, th- there's the energy crisis, right? The, the right. Uh, Arab oil, oil embargo mm-hmm. was going on right around that time, and uh, GM decided to scrap this entire rotary development division or this group um, uh, for the entire Wankel-powered program uh, entirely. They decided to just scrap it. it. Yeah, the whole thing went away. And there's a reason for that, and I'll, I'll tell you in just a moment. But um, All right, so the program is killed, and in 1976 – this comes back again as another concept vehicle. So that was kind of unexpected, right? And some right. people will, will peg this as a 1977 concept, but it's called the AeroVet concept. All one word, AeroVet. A-E-R-O-Vet. Yeah, and this time, instead of having the uh, the rotary engine, it, oh. it, it now has a 400 cubic inch 
Chevy V8, of course. And so this is the car that the public saw in either, I don't know if it was 1976 or 1977. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, the dates are a little bit off, but, um, this car, was approved for production. They they actually gave it the go-ahead, the green light, and said, let's go ahead and build this thing. But here's what happened. And this is why this whole thing was killed off. I mean, beyond the rotary thing, the AeroVet program, which should have been should have happened in 1980 again, right. was killed off. Because in, uh, the chief supporters, uh, which would be you know Zora Arkastantov and Bill Mitchell and Ed Cole, uh, retired from General Motors, a guy named David R. McClellan decided that uh, that's the guy that took over, by the right, way. Right, right. He decided that a front-engine car would be more economical to build and would have better performance, and they canceled the entire AeroVet program completely. Like, uh, they just did the whole thing. Yeah. Another like, brush with greatness. Yeah, it, it was so close to happening. It was just about ready to happen when they when they pulled the rug out from underneath it. So the, the, the argument was that yeah. um, contemporary imported rear or mid-engine cars had very poor sales in the United States at the time. It like was, the Datsun 240Z. Well, and the and even the Pantera. You know, they had low numbers. It wasn't the moneymaker for them. And they were looking at other cars like... Um, oh, know, wait, let me amend that. I'm sorry. I... Mean the Datsun 240Z was outselling the mid-engine imports. Yes. Datsun is front engine, so yeah, they, by volume, right? So they're looking at those numbers and they see that precedent and they say, "Well, we don't want to go into a losing game." Yeah, exactly. So they they they're looking at or they're looking at um, uh, volume at this point. They're looking right. at the number of cars sold and they feel like they can sell more if it's a front engine uh, engine vehicle versus the mid-engine cars, which just weren't you know they weren't putting up the numbers that the front-engine cars were. Like you said, the, the 240Z from Datsun, mm-hmm. um, that just kind of put the nail in the coffin for the AeroVet. So if you go back and look at the AeroVet, um, it, it's it's an interesting design. It really is. It's kind of cool. It has a lot of, um, um, oh, what would that be, C3 design, I guess, uh, in it. You can see a lot of that. And, um, man, I, I watched this video that shows the, um, it shows the AeroVet car. And well, actually, it's the X twenty two, so it's still at this point, I believe, the rotary engine. But uh, you watch the same video, right, with all yeah. the features and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you want to kind of skip through this here before I get to maybe why those two uh, the, the two rotor cars may have been a little bit more significant uh, historically, anyways. Uh-huh. Um, and and maybe that's overselling it. I don't know, but uh, there's an interesting tie in here to the two rotor cars later on. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But looking at this uh, this Aerovet uh, design, well, actually, I couldn't, I can't even say that at this point. It, four years later, the Aerovet design, mm-hmm. but the but the XP eight twenty two that's uh, that's cumbersome to say. Um, <laughs> as we look at this in this uh, in this video, uh, the one that was shown at the nineteen seventy three Paris Motor Show, I believe. Uh, it's interesting. They don't really go into too much detail about it, the engine or how it's cooled or any of that stuff. You know, they, they really just showing, they're really just showing you the features of the day. And I found that so funny. Right. In that, uh, you know, they're showing you the, of course, it's a 6.4 liter rotary engine. It's, it's midship, as, as we said. But they're showing you things like the low profile design, the, the windshield design, which is really unique. Uh, it was like a, a deep V windshield mm-hmm. almost. And, uh, it had a seam right in the middle. It was angled at something like seventy-two degrees, and you, it was like a wraparound design that went right into the door glass. Yeah, the other thing, extreme. and the door glass, by the way, it had fixed windows in the doors, and it had these crazy. Um, well, make, actually, not so crazy now. It had these gullwing doors, these, but they were double folding, right? Yeah, yeah, bifold gullwing doors. But what does that sound like? That's uh, that's uh, sounds well, like the Tesla. Well, we just saw yeah. Tesla demonstrate the exact same thing. Oh, but they, oh, my friend, they call them Falcon doors oh, over fa- at Tesla. <laughs> Falcon doors. So I, I'm not kidding. So though. if you go back to 1973, yeah. General Motors had the same thing, and they called it bifold gullwing doors. So maybe it was all marketing. Maybe they should have come up with a better name. Yeah, maybe called it uh, the Falcon doors. Oh, Falcon comes up later too in this yeah, story. Was it going to say? But yeah, <laughs> it had power seats. Now it, this is interesting too. Now for the time, remember this is 1970. Uh-huh. It had power seats that moved up and down only. You couldn't move them forward and backward. That's because everything else in the in the driver's area moved. The pedals would move uh, fore and aft. You could move mm-hmm. them closer to you or farther away. And so the seat was up and down. The pedals were forward and backward to uh, to accommodate per- a person's height. And uh, that's a feature that much, much later a lot of manufacturers kind of caught up with in, like, some of the bigger cars. I think this, the Pacifica have that, maybe, the Chrysler Pacifica? There's a Chrysler that had it. Maybe it's a minivan. I, I'm not sure if it's I, a Pacifica. I can't remember. It's uh, it's lost to history, you know, now. <laughs> but, uh, but there are cars now that, or that did have moving pedals anyways. I think that kind of went away again. Um, there was a, a steering wheel column that was adjustable in and out, which isn't a, a shocking thing by any means. But when you move the steering wheel... The whole instrument, uh, the instrument panel moved with it. It was a very small panel that was right inside the view of the, uh, of the, the steering wheel. And that whole thing would move with it. And, and the display in there that I mentioned already that oh. it looks a lot like, you know, it's an early digital readout. So it looks a lot like those very first calculators that had the red numbers uh-huh. or yeah. Yeah, red, red readout. And, uh, very, very primitive, I guess, but really interesting to see. And they use that for several different places. They had that, they had an engine, um, uh, not an engine status. Uh, they had another display panel, I guess, that would um, also give out like the time of day and the calendar date, and you could do elapsed time with this thing. It was very, uh, again, very crude or very primitive version of it, but you could do elapsed time in minutes and seconds if you're mm-hmm. doing uh, what they called high-speed runs or I think they said for rallying even. If you wanted to do it like an, maybe an autocross event or something, you could keep track of your own time. Um, just a lot of really interesting things. You could, you could, the controls that were right near the driver's leg, um, the whole thing was like almost like a waterfall design where it went right. front uh, instrument cluster or panel rather. This big center console went right next to the driver's leg that had a lot of switches and knobs and dials, including the radio, which is mm-hmm. in a really strange position. And you could check the fuel supply, the, you know, the water temperature, oil pressure, battery voltage. All that stuff was uh, was switchable in this. Uh, well, it looked like a made up or a um, a prototype version of this uh, this instrument cluster. But mm-hmm. it's a it's a really it's a funny video. And I shouldn't say funny. It's a um, it's a good time capsule video, I guess. And you look go. back yeah. and, and see the way it was in the early 1970s versus what we're accustomed to now. Mm-hmm. So and, interesting. And how prescient concept car designs can be in so many ways. You know, I thought the putting the radio down there, I thought that was a really cool move because it sort of prefigures all of the all of the design directions that we're seeing happening today, which is let's bring all of the information closer to the driver, closer to their eyes, even unto the point of vehicles that will show displays in the glass of the windshield. Yeah, and they had that, you know, that digital readout that was higher in the dash, mm-hmm. and that also showed so, – so the radio next to you is like the old school radio that had the buttons and the dials. 
and even the I think it even had the arm that would slide across the dial. Yeah, yeah. However, when you would dial it in, supposedly it would uh, it would show you the radio station in the digital readout as well, and you could keep your eyes up and on the road. And that was a big thing with this is that right. um, visibility was was key in this in this vehicle. They wanted you to be able to see, and in fact, that included the rear visibility, which I think the previous versions of these rear uh, rear and mid engine vehicles. Because of the way the engine was situated, uh, rear visibility was very poor in them. And mm. this particular version, they made sure that rear visibility was really good. In fact, the other cars, I think, required um, almost like a periscope to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, for rear vision. One entirely relied on a periscope uh, rear view because they didn't have a window in the back. Uh, there's a lot of, again, looking back at all these designs, some of them never made it past, um, you know, the clay modeling stage. So, you know, you see them at the GM Silent Center parked mm-hmm. outside, and they've got kind of a, um, you know, like a silver wrap that's applied to it. Uh, but it's just a clay model. It doesn't have any working doors. There's no interior. There's no engine or anything, just a, a concept. And uh, a lot of them, it, well, you can see the design kind of morph along the way into something that looked a lot more like a, uh, you know, something that would potentially be a real production car for them. And if you go back to maybe even, I guess, 1970 with the 882 uh, the mid-engine concepts, you, you can see that, you know, those are feasibly true road cars. They could be. Right. But uh, here's another thing as well. How much money do you think was spent developing these rotary engines? <laughs> Just the engines. Well, <laughs> honestly, I mean, well, the engines are coming from other vehicles. So the engines are developed, but but the problem is the linkages that are, that are required to go between Right, right. The problem being the yeah. linkages uh, and getting the power to the wheels, of course. But what boggles my mind every time we talk about any kind of concept car that got close to production and then fell to the wayside for one reason or another, it just it's so startling to me that people can chalk that up as a loss. Well, see, the, I mean, but they have to continually develop new things, and they're trying. Right. And, and the other thing is that they're they're reactionary too. And that you know, like a good example was with the uh, the Pantera. Mm-hmm. You know, they decided that they were going to scrap the whole program, and then thought, well, wait a minute, we've got to have something to compete. We got something close. You got to have a Pantera. Let's, you know, if we if we put another couple million dollars into this thing, maybe because uh, that's the numbers that we're talking about. And even in 1970 or 19 the late 60s. Uh, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars in development costs that are going into these things. And it's, it's something that you, it's hard to give up, I'm sure. But you have to realize what the, what the market wants as well. And, and that's really, really critical here. So, so it's, I find it interesting that, that Ford's product or Ford's, uh, Ford's version, um, kind of prompted them to continue with the program for at least another half a decade, maybe more. Uh, it could be a full full decade. Uh, so it was, it was uh, I don't know, it's a fascinating history behind the Aero Vet. Right. And, and I find it really interesting that they just kind of used the same concept vehicle with a different engine and called it something different. I'm sure they updated it here and there. I don't know all of the updates between the four rotor version mm-hmm. uh, from, when was it, 1973? Yeah. Uh, up to the 76, 77 version of the Aero Vet. There's got to be a lot of tweaking that went along the way. Um, you know, whether that's something that's just making it look like the current product line, you know, like the current VET, mm. or, uh, you know, w- what it would be. If it would be an update to that instrument panel that was a little bit outdated, maybe there's, you know, advances there. Um, but I encourage you to watch that, um, you know, that AeroVet video that's on YouTube. And it's pretty easy to find just AeroVet concept. And, and we'll we'll put it on our Twitter feed as well so you can check it out. Yeah, sure. Hey, we can do that. Scott, here's an idea. Why don't we move to the future? Because we've talked about the 70s. I think we summed up the almost rise of the, of the rotary powered Corvette concepts. But the big question, the elephant in the room, dare I say the car on the roof here is what happened? What happened to these prototypes? What happened? Oh, so, well, some of them are on display, as we said, at right. the, uh, at the Bowling Green Museum or Bowling Green Kentucky Museum, the National Corvette Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are, you know, um, private, held privately. You know, people own them, individuals, I guess, own them. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. 
But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, some of them ended up at the GM Heritage Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're on that in that huge display, uh, not display rather, but huge museum right. where they only are, they're only capable of showing like 25% of what they own or 20%, yeah. which is hundreds of vehicles. They own something like eight, 800 or 1,000 vehicles. It's a huge, huge collection. Uh, some of them ended up there. And then there's another mystery. There's a, there's a couple that, you know, were supposedly lost in fires or just kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And that's where one of the two-rotor vehicles comes back in. Right. So uh, there's a there's another player we introduced at this point in our story. He is a Corvette historian mm-hmm. and an Englishman yeah, uh, and by birth uh, who receives a phone call from his buddy, a, a really weird phone call mm-hmm. in the 80s. And it's, uh, his buddy is a guy named Jeff Lawson, uh, former, uh, Jaguar design chief. And, uh, he says, Hey, I got a, I got a weird thing. I got this car that we're about to destroy. Yeah. That's a, what a strange call to get, right? We got yeah. a car that's, that may be of interest to you. Um, really, we don't know what we can use it for. So we're just going to get rid of this thing or we want you to find out about it. And, the strange thing is, and he says it's it's a Corvette. They're going to crush this Corvette. It's on the roof of a ten-story building. Yeah, the Vauxhall Design Building, which is already weird, right? So right. they're they're going to uh, use this space to build new offices, and they just want it, they want to know if this guy wants it just as kind of a uh, uh, piece of interest, I guess. You know, something mm-hmm. that he can park in his garage and show off, maybe, or something. So luckily for uh, Corvette fans everywhere, uh, Tom Falconer. Rolls with the punch and grasps this opportunity, and he says, "No, don't destroy it, you guys. I'm on the way." But he doesn't even know exactly what it is yet. He has until, no idea until the guy is talking. He's talking to Jeff again, and uh, you know, Falconer's talking to Jeff again, and he says, "The the guy accidentally lets it slip, but the car has a steel body. It's a Corvette with a steel body. That mm-hmm. just that, that didn't happen." So Tom right away knew that it was not an ordinary Corvette, but he knew that they had created a steel a steel body two rotor car. And uh, this one was supposedly destroyed in a fire in California in 1977. But here he is. He's getting a call about it right now. Right. So interesting. Now, this is a car that um, it's the it's, it's the XP897, and they, they added GT onto it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why they added GT, but it's the XP897. I think the article here has it wrong. They called it the 978 or something. That's a typo. Right. It's the yeah. XP897. Yeah, and this is a car that was designed or styled by GM, but then it was built, hand-built by uh, Pininfarina in just six months. So they shipped it over to Italy to be built in, in just six months. And uh, it was based on this shortened and widened Porsche 914 6 chassis, which made 
the restoration later that we're going to talk about very, very, very easy. Very easy. Well, yeah. a lot easier than it would be. You know, uh-huh. If you're trying to, you know, just work with a one-off or a prototype chassis, that would be difficult. Right, yeah. Um, so his guess is that it's it costs something like $3 million just to build this one prototype vehicle, and these guys are getting ready to scrap it. They're getting ready to get rid of it. And the thing is, GM didn't want it either because... Um, right after, in, well, we should say this up front: the engine and transaxle were not there. Right. Yeah. This was uh, this was definitely missing the engine. Also, oh, the gearbox. Yeah, it wasn't there. Also, GM. Uh, at this point, do they want to be reminded of this long and ultimately futile seeming struggle to create a rotary engine line? Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, is it is it worth it? Is it, is it right. worth it at that point, right? So the idea, though, was that they were going to have it shipped back to Detroit. To Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, but the uh, the guys in the accounting department, or GM, decided that is it? It's not worth the shipping. It, it, yeah, the the, the hull much. of the hull of this thing. Since they're not going to really go forward with the program, the hull of this thing is not worth shipping it back. The engine and and transmission, or the gearbox rather, did make it back to the United States. That's here. The, the uh, but the shell of this car um, still just remained there. So for whatever reason. It was just left alone there in the UK and just kind of forgotten. You know, it was just it was just parked somewhere. And of course, mm-hmm. how it ended up on the roof of that ten-story building—I don't know if it was used to display or you know how exactly it got to the top of that—but it know, was freight, the only parking available. Well, <laughs> might have been. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, of course, obviously this is a freight elevator situation. They didn't dismantle it and then you know right. They brought it up there in one piece. It was all one piece, and it was in fact it was even crated when he went to see it, I believe. Mm-hmm. And very excited about finding this whole thing and. um I, I, we're getting into the point here where I find this historically significant, Ben, I promise. But, um, <laughs> so he decided that, you know, he was going to take on the task of doing this, but he didn't want to have the, um, the original, I think at the time, the original engine wasn't known to him, you know, the one that, uh, that eventually turned up. Right. Um, but that is here in the United States, the, the four liter GM CRE2 engine that turned up in the States. Uh, he decided he was going to put in a Mazda engine. He put in a Mazda 13B rotary engine, which actually, as he said, it was more in the spirit of the original concept, and they matched it with a Cadillac front-wheel drive automatic gearbox that everything lined up perfectly on. So this all worked out really right. well. And it does have a rotary engine, but not the exact one that uh, that it came with. He has since, you know, learned of the uh, of the U.S. engine, the, the original one that came in that car, but he doesn't know if he wants to go through the effort of putting that engine in there. So this is really weird, Ben. This thing today... It sits in, on display in this guy's showroom in a town called Snodland, Kent, mm-hmm. and that is in southeast England. Mm-hmm. And he says uh, since 1997, uh, that's when he put the engine in. I think it's been sitting in this uh, the showroom, and a lot of people come in and just kind of look at it. They, they they know it's there. He says, I get a lot of Americans that come in just wanting to see it because they can't believe that it's sitting here. They mm-hmm. can't believe that this thing – it's like a weird um, – anomaly in history that this thing ended up where it did and that it stayed where it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just a really, really odd thing. Now, he again, he decided not to put that engine in. He has given the owner of the engine here in the States first, uh, what do they call it, the first turndown, I guess? You know, like if you're if you're going to sell the car, right. you're going to sell it to somebody. You know, you, you want to get rid of it, auction, whatever. Mm-hmm. He's, he's given the... Um, uh, the first refusal, I guess, is what you would call that. You know, the offer of first refusal to the owner of the engine so that it can be paired up again. Uh, but other than that, he doesn't really plan to sell it. He's going to hang on to it. And then, okay, here's, here's the, the whole thing I've been leading up to here. And, and I know that, um, maybe all that was kind of insignificant. It's just a, you know, a concept car that turned up. It's, it's important in some way, but maybe not as significant as, as I found this last bit of information. Oh, I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah, he says now, uh, it's not really that it's so valuable. He, it is pretty valuable. I mean, he, you know, it was a three million dollar concept, but it's not of a, a whole lot of value to many other people. It never fetched three million. Right. It would be less. Yeah. A, a lot be. less. Significantly less. It would be seen more as an historical oddity rather that, than, uh, you know, like a concourse car. Well, that's it. And it's probably, I mean, I'll be honest. It's probably enough money for for someone to sell and retire on that money. It's it's that kind of money. Sure. But it's not three million dollars. I don't think. I mean, current market will tell you whatever, but. Here's what I found most interesting about this whole thing. He says the only person that ever really found it valuable was John DeLorean. And because he used that car, he personally used that car often. And, in fact, he loved that. It was his project. It was like his baby when he was at at this, uh, at this um, at GM. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is after he initially said that he didn't want the program. Then he said, yeah, let's work on this program. And then he started to revamp the whole thing. So, so DeLorean liked the project. And when he left GM... 
he tried to buy the rights to the two rotor to the two rotor en- engine design this um, um, this vehicle design overall right. yeah, yeah. that could have been the car that he ended up building the sports car that he ended up building in in um, in Ireland instead of the DeLorean DMC or the DM sorry the DeLorean DMC 12 which leads us to an interesting what if alternative history question you know was the DeLorean just something that he settled for because I, he, I feel it was. I feel, it sounds like it is as we as we read this story. Well, you know? yeah, because this was his baby. This was his project, and he he knew this car, you know, in and out. And I think that if he had he had decided that you know if he got the rights to to own that vehicle, he could have almost immediately started producing cars out of that factory because they had all the kinks worked out. Yeah, exactly. Well, so they had most. Of and the and we know <laughs> we know the difficulties that he went through with the the DMC twelve, right? So uh-huh. so all of that would have been kind of put to the side. I mean, how would how would this have changed history if he had been able to build that car? If GM had said, "Yeah, you can have the rights to build that that two rotor design," mm-hmm. what would that have changed? Like, would would that have meant that you know because he got involved with the whole drug thing because he was trying to raise money for that company. That was that was the yeah. So would that have happened, or would he have been okay because he would have he would have started selling cars immediately, or or would it also have been kind of a I don't uh, know. Man. Would it also have been kind of a flop? You know, and and yeah, still I don't know. And, and would he have still resorted to that? Now that's of course that's a pretty extreme uh, you know uh, plan B on his part. Don't and you that's think? that's asking us to guess about someone's personal character yeah. as well. Because yeah. for all we know, it could have been a runaway success, and then and he still would have done this. And he still would have gotten into the drug business. We <laughs> we really don't know. I'm yeah. not saying that's true. I'm just saying we I, don't know. I know, and and you know, I feel like uh, you know, there's probably some gaps in the history here, but there's a, there's some really interesting tie-ins with this Aerovet, the four rotor program, mm. John DeLorean, mm. uh, of course, the Corvette program in general. You know, all the concepts that they've had. They've had so many Corvette concepts through the years that a lot of people. Have never ever seen. There's there's sites online that I went to for research that had just a laundry list of Corvettes with with lots of information there about yeah. them too. It's a rabbit hole for sure, definitely. And that is most of the story, right? Yeah, most of the Aerovet story. So we've talked a little bit about alternative history there there toward the end. Uh, and Miles, we hope that we have. Uh, answered some of the questions about the Aerovet and the Rotary program. But you guys know this show, we always like to end on a good note. We try to. And this is an episode where we might have some light at the end of the tunnel. Possibly. Now, there, there has been a lot of talk recently. Maybe. Yeah, right. with the with the latest version of the Corvette that came out, they said, why didn't you make it a mid-engine vet? Because there was a rumor for a long time that it was going to be mm-hmm. a mid-engine vet for this latest release, and it was not, of course. Uh, but they're saying that this is something that is probably going to happen very soon. So they're uh, they're they're leading us to believe, and I've even seen some test mule vehicles that have been you know uh, disguised, you know, with the wraps right, and everything. Right. That uh, they are testing a mid-engine Corvette that may hit the showrooms as early as 2018. That's the number I've seen. Could be a little later. I don't mm-hmm. think it'll be any sooner than that. But 2018 is kind of the uh, the target date right now for the latest version of the mid-engine vet. And is it going to actually hit the road? Is it going to actually hit a concept showroom? Yeah, and there's a lot of people that have, you know, come out with, uh, you know, their their renderings, their ideas of what this will look like. So right. that's all right now, just speculation. Until we actually see the real deal or something, you know, uh, credible, I guess, from GM, we are we're not going to know exactly what it'll look like. But a lot of people can you can guess. I mean, it does it does dramatically change the profile of the car. When you move that engine to the back, especially on a, on a car like a Corvette where it has such a long, long front end. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of room for, uh, for changes there. So, uh, all this again, these, these renderings, these concepts, these, uh, these ideas that are coming mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, whether it's just bloggers or, um, you know, uh, graphic design artists that, that are saying, here's my shot at what this is going to look like. Right. Uh, they, they all vary. Somewhat. I mean, Artist interpretation. Yeah, exactly right. So, so we'll see what it really looks like, and I'm I'm excited to see it. I, it's not that I'm in the market for a Corvette or anything, but uh, people are really, really excited about the idea. The Corvette heads want a mid-engine car so bad. The enthusiasts are writing letters to Corvette about it, and Chevrolet, Corvette have been working on this idea. So here's hoping that it does 
become a production vehicle at some point. I think they're getting so much pressure, as you said, from the outside, you know, from just enthusiasts and, and people that are re- that truly will buy this car, that, that yeah. are just excited about it. It's like you said earlier, uh, a car manufacturer has to follow the market. Mm-hmm. And so any indication from the enthusiast uh, tells us that people want this mid-engine, this mid-ship design. The big question, as you alluded to earlier, the question the execs are probably asking is, well, are they actually going to buy this car? Oh, see, that's the whole thing. Is that's that, the you know, thing. You, you invest, again, uh, probably hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in, in a new vehicle like that. You know, if not, well, tens of millions at least, if not hundreds of millions. How many of these people that say they want something are, are honest-to-goodness buyers? How many are going to really pony up to buy one of these things, right. brand new from us from the factory? Because they're going to be expensive. It's not going to be a cheap car by any means. I don't have any idea what it'll cost, but it's not going to be cheap. And are they going to, maybe cheap compared to the other mid-engine vehicles that are out there right now? <laughs> right. And oh, you know that's another quick thing that I, I think we maybe should mention. So What's that? okay, well we're all excited about the Corvette. Yeah, Let's yeah, just leave sure, it sure, that, sure. right? But we we really didn't talk about um, and we'll make this super fast. Hmm. Mid-engine design—that's something that you know a lot of people oh, want. General, for, uh, yeah. just, just want for balance and weight distribution and all that. And typically, it's been reserved for the cars that we're talking about, like the high-end vehicles. You know, the yeah. ultra sports cars, really. You mm-hmm. know, like um, you know some of the, the the bigger names have mid-engines, right? But there's also been a couple of exceptions along the way, and I feel like we've talked about these in the past. And, and I'll make it super quick, Ben. Just a real quick laundry sure, sure, list. Yeah. But think about like the Pontiac Fiero. That was yeah, mid-engine. That was mid-engine. Mid-engine, very affordable. The Toyota MR2, the Porsche 914, uh-huh. the Fiat X19, uh, those are all mid-engine vehicles. Now, you may think of another couple that um, are tempting to say were mid-engine, like the Corvair, but that was a rear engine. The Carmen Ghia, which was also a rear engine. There's a few examples. Of course, uh, the Beetle, which is a rear engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of really affordable examples of mid-engine cars out there, but we tend to think of these high-end exotics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like Corvette is closer to the high-end exotic range, and that's why I yeah, kind of lumped, sure. lumped it in with those, I guess, there at I, the end. I still have a soft spot for the uh, MR2s, man. I do, too. Uh, they're pretty cool. First-gen especially. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of that mm-hmm. angular design, and uh, my aunt and, and my uncle owned one. Um, I got to drive. I think that was the first car that I ever drove over 100 miles per hour. I mean, <laughs> that I was in the driver's seat, and uh, and she allowed me to do it too. It was like, go it's ahead, you as know? fun. Well, <laughs> what do what do you mean? It wasn't as fun. It's not as fun if it's they let you drive. Well, no, I was. But here's the thing: I was like 18 or 19 at the time, oh, and yeah. we're out on like some old country road in Indiana. What a rush! And she had just got this as a brand new vehicle, and uh, yeah, it was a fantastic car. It was a, it was a blast to drive. And in fact. I have really good memories of that car. If I could, if I could do this, if I could have one of those as like a toy car, I would. Yeah. Um, it just the, the right combination of uh, you know timing and uh, available money and space and all that has never come up that I could get one. And time to drive recreationally. I, I know that's all like it sounds like excuses, but anytime I was looking for a project car, I wasn't looking for anything like that at the time huh, right. or, or a toy car. But uh, but I would I would get one for sure. It's it's so much fun to drive. And speaking of personal car stories. Uh, Let's do something we haven't done in a while. Let's do some listener mail. Sounds good. Okay, Scott, this email comes to us from a listener named Martin G. And I want to uh, give an apology to you, Martin, on air, because you had written to me through another show and said, hey, will you write back to me on car stuff? And I believe it was somewhere on the Internet. And I I believe I said, oh, absolutely. And I forgot. That was my bad. It's on me. Wait a minute. Okay, so let me ask you a question. This is uh, is related. I I don't remember if it was Martin or not, but the other day on Facebook, someone wrote just a comment that seemed like it didn't fit with any other comments in the whole thing. (laughs) And all it said was, Ben lied to me again. And I think, I think that was it, it might be Martin. That was it. That's it. I was I was thinking about writing him back saying like how so, but I guess this is this answers the question. And so man, Penn, you uh you you uh, made an enemy there. Or maybe oh not. no, not a maybe no. not an enemy. Uh, lying I didn't lie on purpose. My intentions were good. <laughs> That's all right. I'm not the most organized, but Martin wrote to us with uh with his own car review. Remember we did personal car reviews? Yeah. And we asked people to write in with theirs? Yes, I remember uh, that. 
So let's start here. Martin says, hey, guys, how are you? I binged on episodes, decided to send in a review. Here he goes. I own a 2006 Mustang GT premium trim in the Ford Redfire color variant. Currently has 99,933 miles on it. I took so long to answer this that it, it probably hit 100. Oh, probably. 100 plus by now. He said, it's also my first car after scrounging up the money for a decent down payment. However, my family has six cars. I've driven them all, ranging from 2013 BMW 750i to a 2002 Toyota Tacoma. He says, my Mustang's nowhere near as smooth as the BMW, but it is so much more fun to drive. Uh, nothing beats the feeling of hearing that good old throaty exhaust. It's a head turner. Uh, the car's a little tough through turns. It has a heavy feel to it. Acceleration, a little slow for my taste, he says. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles of modern cars, but I'm in it for the thrill of the drive. If I want convenience, I drive the other cars, right? What year was that? 2006, which 2006. to me is still like a kind of a modern car. Yeah, it's pretty modern. I'd well, there are a lot of, I mean, we are in a, in a era of breakthroughs. Rapid you know, development. Rapid development. You nailed it. He said, I added some modifications to make the car handle and sound better. So he had a strut tower, a sway bar, cold air intake, had the rear gears switched to 4.10 Ford racing gears, added a Bama performance tune, and now he says it's a completely different beast. Tighter around turns, accelerates quicker. He added bolts on the pipes for the exhaust, Flowmaster Outlaw axle backs, pipes, H-pipe, mid-pipe. He says it gives it that loud muscle car rumble. And you'll like this, Scott. He got tint. He, he had the windows tinted. Oh, good. 5%. Oh, good. That'll make it way faster. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm so far out of the aftermarket game that all those uh, products that you were mentioning, yeah. half of them I don't even know, recognize the names. Well, here's a here's a picture of the, of the car right now. It's in great condition. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm looking to add stripes to it. What do you think? Oh, stripes. Stripes are always good. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like stripes. Oh, of course. Stripes are a good decision. Racing stripes are are typically a good suggestion for any vehicle. Make anything, again, faster. Always faster. (laughs) Right. Except for certain minivans. (laughs) Uh, So he says, all in all, I love my car. It's not great on gas. uh, And he says, but his family has a hybrid for fuel economy. And he says, as a 20-year-old college student, this car gives me the best experiences and Martin and I were talking a little bit online. I can't imagine. I have car envy. Can you yeah. imagine being 20 years old and having such a beautiful vehicle? At 20, that's a very nice vehicle to have. That sure is. My my cars at 20 were, well, it was, you know, that wagon, that brown wagon that I was telling you about. Yeah. You know, my first car. Or my, I'm sorry, my second car, my, my cheapest car that I ever yeah. bought was that one. My cars uh, so, at 20 were stolen. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say that now? Has it been enough time? You no, know, I'm I, and Martin, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not busting on you for the, uh, for the, the stripes. I'm being sincere. I think he is. Yeah, I, I really do like racing stripes on some vehicles, and, uh, and the Mustang is one. You have you have over the years honestly asked me with sincerity several times when I was going to get racing stripes on the Monte Carlo. Yeah, I'm still looking at my uh, CC for stripes. You know, fitting it, fitting it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm no, just kidding, you should get you should get flames. Almost. <laughs> no, don't get no, flames. Almost, get a stripe. You know, I've got uh, I've got a I have a single racing stripe on my go kart at home, <laughs> and uh, that Ford Festive that I had, I did my own stripes, and I look pretty good. So I don't know. I, it seems like on some vehicles it fits. I also did a lot of vehicles. I had a uh, I had an well, I didn't have it, but an orange Honda Civic. Uh, yeah. My, well, anyways, I, I also had stripes on that one. Orange? I'll show you a picture later. You're actually yeah. going. I bet you like it. Okay. Uh, you know what? I will. I will reserve judgment till I see the evidence. <laughs> uh, it, that's that's a good thing uh, for us to for us to follow up with. Martin, thanks so much for writing in. Uh, as Scott and I have said before, we don't always respond as quickly as we wish. But of course, thank you for keeping me honest and have fun. I am, I think, legally required to tell you to be safe. While you're driving this uh, this awesome beast, uh, in the meantime, I have a question for the listeners, Scott. Oh, good. Are there any cars you've seen that have racing stripes, but definitely should not? Oh, that's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. Send in some photos. You can post. <laughs> you know, you can send them like a message on Facebook or email us or whatever you want. But uh, yeah, there's some there's some 
pretty bad examples out there as well, like crooked stripes. That's another oh, one. Oh, yeah, you, you got to have clean stripes. If oh, you're doing it, do it right. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the whole thing of, uh, you know, one stripe versus two stripes or uh, mm-hmm. you know, off-center or centered mm-hmm. or the thickness of the stripe matters too on the type of vehicle. That, all that has to come in. There's like a... Uh, almost like a uh, a proportional thing that has to happen. Right, like a, a ratio of sorts. Yeah, yeah. sort of. I mean, it, it, there's a lot to talk about with stripes, believe it or not. <laughs> so, yeah, send us some examples of bad ones. Yeah, and uh, if you want to see the video of the Corvette Aerovet, then check out our Twitter. We can post on Facebook as well. We're Car Stuff HSW. At both of those, as we mentioned, we have the website where you can check out all the podcasts we've ever done. If you like this, uh, you'll like the rotary and engine you will also like oh man there's so many concept car oh yeah so, there's a ton of those are to, great too yeah there's what 730 some at this point so uh, there's a lot to search through and I, I almost can guarantee you'll find something of interest there. Right. Just look through the long, long list. Hopefully something of interest. And if in your perusal of our catalog of episodes, you run into a concept that we have not yet covered but should, then we'd like to hear from you. You can write to us directly at carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions... Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.